The Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle, has long been a subject of fascination. Situated between Miami, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda, this 500,000 square mile region of the Atlantic has captured the imaginations of many with its history of mysterious disappearances and unexplained phenomena. Tales of ships vanishing without a trace and aircraft mysteriously going off course have given rise to numerous theories and speculations. While some attribute these incidents to extraterrestrial or supernatural forces, others believe severe weather conditions and other atmospheric anomalies may be to blame. Lying on roughly the same level of latitude as the Dragon's Triangle in the Pacific, the Bermuda Triangle is also said to be the resting place of the lost city of Atlantis. Is there something paranormal, something unexplainable about the Bermuda Triangle, or is it just another ordinary patch of ocean and things unfortunately go missing in the ocean more than we'd like to realize? Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Paranormal Community College. My name is Riley and today we're talking about the Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle. But first, some quick announcements. Number one, I'm going to have to switch to one episode a week. I am just so overwhelmed right now and working like 10 hours a day. However, in September, I will be starting a Patreon where I will be offering four bonus episodes per month the fourth of which patrons will be able to vote on. So I'll give you guys a short list of topics and you guys will be able to vote on what you want to hear about. Secondly, please make sure if you're enjoying the podcast to like, subscribe, and follow. Also, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts really helps me out. So I'm finally getting back to my regular day job in a week or so. So in the next couple of months, I will be able to really ramp up the podcast and start turning it into what I really want it to be. I am so thankful for you early listeners, so just please stick around and bear with me because I have some really fun things in store. But since the economy is in shambles, and namely my economy is in shambles, it's going to take me a bit of time to get there. But before we dive into the Bermuda Triangle, I wanted to talk about some current events. So we all know the U.S. has been having quite the alien summer. We kick things off with the nine-foot tall, 100% not human alien dudes in Las Vegas, which may or may not be real, but it certainly got people all hyped up about aliens. Then we had whistleblower David Grush come out talking about how the government knows about a non-human intelligence on Earth and has recovered crafts and bodies. Then we had the UF subcommittee hearing, of course. We also have people like Avi Loeb and Jeremy Corbell in the news all the time talking about aliens. But have you guys heard about what is going on in Peru? And if you do, if you have heard about this, before you say this is obviously fake, I think we should keep an open mind about some things. So the story is that since J July 11th, a small village of Loreto in northeastern Peru has been under attack by non-human creatures. The residents making these claims are members of the Iquitu tribe, an indigenous community, and they are calling these beings Los Pelicares, or the Face Pillars. These are mythological beings from their folklore that are generally terrifying and not nice, but the way they're being described sounds real alien-like. So the reports actually go back to July 19th, I'm sorry, June 19th, where three teenage boys claimed they were severely burned by a UFO. Throughout the entire country, but mostly in this northeastern Alto Nane region, people have been claiming to see seven-foot-tall beings. They're described in a lot of different ways, which does kind of make me believe there is a little bit of mass hysteria or a telephone game going on. So some say they have grayish green skin and black almond eyes. 
They also say they have the large round heads. So we're talking about tall grays, essentially. The typical gray alien, just much taller. A man by the name of Alfredo claims to have a picture of this being that he took in his garden. And I don't know, man. I'm not a Photoshop or AI expert, but it looks pretty real to me. And the being is kind of like glowing. Alfredo said it was emanating a light so bright that he couldn't see anything at first. And um, maybe I'll post a picture on Instagram. It basically looks like a typical gray alien. It's got the large head, spindly little body, and it's like glowing like this really bright white light. So the chief of the village, a man by the last name of Davila, said he and others have tried shooting at them to no avail. They are impervious to bullets. He said that when he looked one in the face, it was like they were all blurry, but everything around him was still clear, just like what the guys in Las Vegas said. I don't know what to make of that, but just thought I'd point that out. So Chief Davila described them as looking straight up like the Green Goblin from Spider-Man. His words, not mine. He and others have said they have some kind of green protective suit on and that they have yellow glowing eyes. They also have round shoes or saucers on the bottom of their shoes that allow them to levitate and fly away. Others say they are wearing long black cloaks. I think some of them have said they're brown in color. So, I mean, there's a lot of variation here, which kind of adds to the mass hysteria hypothesis. But events culminated on July 27th when a 15-year-old girl was allegedly grabbed and dragged over 150 feet by one of these beings and even suffered a cut to the back of her neck. She ended up receiving stitches for her injury. The Akitu people had already been trying to get the police and Navy to come check things out, but with this story, they finally came out to the jungle to investigate. And here's their conclusion. And this is why I think there might actually be something to this story because the official case closed conclusion is freaking bizarre. Whether it's aliens or a weird military experiment, who knows, but this explanation of events can't be real. So the police and military are saying that there's nothing supernatural or interdimensional or extraterrestrial going on here. What the villagers were seeing were illegal gold miners from Brazil and Colombia who were trying to scare them from their mining operation. Seems somewhat halfway reasonable at first. I could have maybe lived with that, but then they say, oh yeah, also, by the way, the miners were wearing jetpacks. Yep, you can look it up. You're going to have to translate the article or find someone who has already translated it, but the state is claiming it's nothing more than miners on jetpacks, but I'm like, miners on jetpacks? Shouldn't we be concerned or super weirded out by that? And so first off, high-end jetpacks cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's in U.S. money. Secondly, a friend of mine was telling me that only a handful of people even are trained to properly operate a jetpack. And I mean, especially in the jungle where you have to weave in and out of trees and thick brush, it's just such a weird and unbelievable story. Apparently, a local teacher came out and said, oh yeah, I saw that girl get dragged, but it wasn't a creature. It was a regular man with a jetpack that had some kind of propeller on it of some kind. And I'm just picturing in my head like those nerdy hats with the propellers on top of them because honestly, that story is just as silly. Also, residents have been claiming they are seeing black helicopters on a daily basis when they've never seen them come around before. Could be to keep an eye on flying cold miners or could be something else. And there is a video, and of course it's blurry, but keep in mind, this is literally in the Amazon jungle. These people likely don't have the latest iPhones, but even though it's blurry, it's weird, dude. Like, 
I think it's weird anyway. You can kind of make out what looks like a creature and it kind of does look like a gray alien, but I don't know. I do think this case still deserves to be looked at with an open mind. I mean, it's been all over the Peruvian news with numerous eyewitnesses. The military is acting weird. I think something was going on, aliens or not, but look it up and tell me what you think. Okay, but let's talk about the Bermuda Triangle. Now, growing up, I was allowed to watch entirely way too much television at my grandma's house, and most of that consisted of true crime, haunted history, haunted hotels, ghost hunting shows, alien shows, and so on and so forth. If you ever wonder why, why I am the way I am. And I don't remember the exact day I learned about the Bermuda Triangle. It was probably on Unsolved Mysteries or something. But I do remember, I think my cousin or a friend of mine had told me that their parents were going on a vacation to Bermuda. And I was like, oh my God, don't they, don't they know? They can't go there. What if they never come back? Don't you know about all the disappearances and aliens and other weird stuff that goes on down there? And I was maybe probably like seven. But thankfully, I don't think anything happened to them. And truly, millions of people traverse the Bermuda Triangle each year and are completely fine. But there are enough eerie and mysterious stories coming from this area alone that it warrants discussion, in my opinion. And truly, after this research, I'm like, should we still be concerned about the triangle a bit? We just forgot about it and decided it's not a big deal. But I don't know, man. Apparently, there's no evidence more disappearances occur here more than any other area of the ocean. But it's also the nature of the disappearances and the prevalence of UFOs and other atmospheric phenomenon on top of stories of Atlantis as well that make this place extra weird. So I am going to cover some mysterious disappearances of planes and boats as well as their passengers and crew, some UFO and USO stories, and we're going to look at some theories. But just so you know, there's no way I can talk about every single disappearance and odd occurrence here because there's truly hundreds of stories. Some of the mysterious disappearances of ships have been recently solved too, so I've left those stories out. If, however, you want more Bermuda Triangle stories, the most thorough and well-researched websites slash databases I could find are coming from the Quester Files at thequesterfiles.com as well as www.bermuda-attractions.com. But let's start with some fun facts about the Bermuda Triangle, shall we? So this area of the Atlantic is one of the 12 vile vortices, and we kind of talked about that in the Japan episode with the Dragon's Triangle. They are places around the world notorious for odd phenomena and puzzling disappearances. Science contends these are naturally occurring electromagnetic anomalies that are spaced evenly across the planet along the Tropic of Cancer, the Tro Tropic of Capricorn, and the North and South Poles. The most popular of these vile vortices is, of course, the Bermuda Triangle, but we also have the Dragon's Triangle in the Pacific, Mohenjo-Daro in Pakistan, Hamakulia Volcano in Hawaii, Megalithic Ruins in Algeria, the South Atlantic Anomaly, Megaliths of Zimbabwe, the Wharton Basin in the Indian Ocean, the Hebrides Trenches in the Fiji Islands, and the Easter Islands. So at the Bermuda Triangle, compasses point to true north instead of magnetic north, which can lead to even experienced pilots becoming disoriented and let off course. In the last 100 years, over a thousand people have lost their lives, and 50 ships as well as 20 planes have gone missing. The Triangle also consists of a complex underwater cave system. 
Some of the deepest parts of the ocean are located within the confines of the triangle, and many believe these deep sea cave systems may be hiding something. Some say there's an underwater military base of a human or extraterrestrial nature. Who knows? Others say the caves might be contributing to many of the natural anomalies in some way. And speaking of secret bases, do you recall that in the wake of the Storm Area 51 event of summer 2019, there was also Storm Bermuda Triangle, It Can't Swallow Us All? And I don't know when Area 51 will come up again in this podcast, so if anyone knows how I can get in touch with Maddie Roberts, the guy who started the Area 51 thing, please let me know. I know we live in the same town, or at least we used to. I would love to have him on so we can talk about aliens and whatnot, so if you happen to know how to get in contact with him, please let me know. Another theory about the Bermuda Triangle is that the lost city of Atlantis may be lying somewhere beneath the waters. And also for my Louisiana friends, I've been seeing on TikTok stories from the Chandler Islands in St. Bernard Parish. People are saying there's giant mounds down there and potential remnants of a lost civilization. And a bunch of fishermen are also saying weird things have happened out there. So if you have a story from the Chandler Islands or in that general area, let me know. I'm curious. I know I have some friends who listen who are from southeastern Louisiana, so I want to hear stories like that if you got them. But speaking of Atlantis, so the sleeping prophet, Edgar Cayce, who actually had a really great track record with making accurate predictions, predicted in one of his readings that remnants of Atlantis would be found in the Bahamas. And in 1968, three scuba divers discovered what is now called the Bimini Road, a stretch of rectangular limestone rocks that seemed to be possibly man-made. Now, of course, mainstream archaeologists are going to say it's all natural because they're a bunch of lost civilization haters, but it is interesting that in both the Dragon's Triangle in the Pacific and in the Bermuda Triangle in the Atlantic, we have alleged megalithic or man-made structures alongside electromagnetic phenomenon and strange activity. And for our last fun fact, on the border of the Triangle lies the Sargasso Sea, which is truly a really weird part of the Atlantic. Jules Verne described it in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a, quote, perfect lake in the open Atlantic. This area can become potentially dangerous to sailors because of the seaweed that shows up there periodically seemingly out of nowhere, creating almost like an island out of thick seaweed. Also strange is what is called the doldrums, which are abnormally calm and silent areas of the sea. It's a naturally occurring phenomenon that happens in other places as well, but it can be unsettling. This is also a breeding ground for several marine species, particularly eels. Every species of saltwater eel, no matter what part of the ocean they hail from, slither their way on over to the Sargasso Sea to breed. That means eels from the Mediterranean, South Africa, the Pacific, the Atlantic, everywhere. This is apparently prime eel-banging territory. So there's a fun fact for you to tell your friends. But when exactly did the legend of the Bermuda Triangle truly begin? Well, we can trace the first evidence of weirdness back to Columbus's voyage in 1492. When they approached the Sargasso Sea, they almost turned around because Columbus was afraid the seaweed could be hiding shallow water. And if their ships were compromised, they could become trapped in the thick seaweed and drown. Also, the doldrums were so disconcerting that Columbus recorded they may have to return home because of that. As they entered the triangle, Columbus recorded in his journal things that he viewed as quite strange. 
First, he noted compass issues, which is still a thing that happens today and is due to the variation in the Earth's electromagnetic field. But he also wrote that the stars seem to move around in the sky. And I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute. Okay, so one, yes, we all know that Columbus was a terrible person and not the best navigator, and his crew didn't even like him. But this isn't a, a political podcast, so I'm moving on. But I cannot stand when people say things like, well, people back then were just too dumb. They probably just saw a planet or a shooting star or lights in the distance and were too cavemen-like to know what it was. But with that, I say, first of all, people back then, the average person back then, was looking up at the sky way more than we do now. That's why we all think shooting stars are so rare when they're actually quite common, but no one looks up in the sky anymore. Secondly, they could see way more shit in the sky than we could see now. Think of the last time you went to the mountains or the desert and you could see a bajillion stars. They could probably see more than that on a daily basis. They knew what the sky looked like and what shooting stars looked like. A comet could have been a little bit weird, certainly, but by and large, I trust that if something looked a bit strange or abnormal to them, it probably was. Okay, back to the story. So Christopher Columbus said he would see stars moving around in the sky, and people today will say they also see lights moving around at night or they see fireballs. The fireball type of UFO is probably most commonly reported here. One night, Columbus claimed he saw a flame, like that of a candle, he said, moving up and down along the horizon. Modern historians contend while well, he was just seeing natives on shore along the night horizon and Columbus just couldn't see the land yet, so who knows, that, that might be a likely case. But he also said he saw a glowing object come out of the water and shoot up into the night sky. Again, how many times have we heard about UFOs coming out of the ocean? But okay, if you're not a UFO nut like me, then you might say, well, I don't know, how many times have we heard about that? Well, it's been a lot of times, and I think one may have been caught on a flare camera off the coast of San Diego that you might be able to find on YouTube, I'm pretty sure. But they've been reported far and wide by military and civilians alike. We have some mysterious ship disappearances in the area during the 1800s, but for the sake of time, I'm going to jump into the really significant ones since we already had a ghost ship episode. But before we talk about boat disappearances, what is maybe more unsettling is the amount of plane disappearances. Whatever is going on is not confined to the ocean by any means. The sky seems to swallow airplanes as well. So the most famous Bermuda Triangle plane disappearance comes from Flight 19 in 1945, before this sketchy area of the sea had been given its name. On December 5, 1945, five U.S. Navy torpedo bombers carrying a total of 14 men took off from Fort Lauderdale just after 2 p.m. The men consisted of Navy and Marines, and they were led by Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, who was a highly experienced fire fighter pilot and World War II veteran. They were conducting a routine training exercise where they would fly in a triangular pattern passing over Grand Bahama Island. At some point, Lieutenant Taylor became convinced his compasses were malfunctioning and that they were flying in the wrong direction. The men on the ground thought Lieutenant Taylor's confusion or disorientation was odd, but the plane kept appearing and disappearing on radar. A pilot's voice on the radio said, quote, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that turn. Lieutenant Taylor was recorded as saying, quote, both my compasses are out and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale. I'm over land, but it's broken. 
I'm sure it's the keys, but I don't know how far down. He later added, quote, We are entering white water. Nothing seems right. Now the water is green, no white. Strange, because Lieutenant Taylor had just completed the same training exercise earlier that day, and men at the base grew concerned that he thought he was in the Keys because that would put the flight crew 100 miles off track. Taylor then began flying west back to the base, but then changed course again, heading to the east. And he did this time and time again. He kept going back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, Taylor began prepping his crew for a crash landing as they were running low on fuel. And by 6 p.m., their radios fell silent. Two rescue planes were deployed to search for wreckage, and one of those planes also went missing. However, that plane was later discovered. Unfortunately, there were no survivors. Despite deploying 300 rescue planes and scouring over 300,000 miles of territory, the Flight 19 planes were never discovered. No wreckage, no oil slicks, no life vests or other inflatable materials, and no bodies. It seemed as if they had truly been swallowed by the sea in a matter of minutes. The Navy Board of Investigation ultimately ruled their disappearance as caused by, quote, causes and reasons unknown. Navy Lieutenant David White recalled, quote, they just vanished. We had hundreds of planes out looking and we searched over water and land for days and nobody ever found bodies or debris. Of course, this story offered the perfect setting to draw strange conclusions. Humans hate not having answers. And over the following years and decades, people blamed their disappearance on anything from alien abduction to parallel dimensions. While it seems like they simply ran out of fuel, why were they so disoriented? Keep in mind the part of the story where they say that they thought they were in the Keys, but it looked off. It looked different. Remember, these pilots were used to seeing certain islands as landmarks. Why did everything seem so off? Why was the water different? I should also mention that Lieutenant Taylor, he said that he didn't want to make this one out that day. He didn't want to go on this particular training exercise, and he was even late to it. And I'm wondering, so he had already gone to... And this is pure speculation, but he had already completed this exercise. What if he saw something or experienced something or I don't know, maybe something gave him bad vibes when he was on his first training exercise for the day and, you know, his negative vibes were correct. Now, if that was just a one-off story, we probably wouldn't still be talking about them or the Bermuda Triangle almost 100 years later. But on January 30th, 1948, a Tudor aircraft by the name of Star Tiger, coming from the Azores, disappeared as it approached the island of Bermuda. 25 people were on board the plane, including British World War II hero Sir Arthur Cunningham. Now, this particular plane had logged nearly 600 hours of flight time without incident and was considered to be one of the most advanced and safe for its time. It had four engines, and should even two of them fail, the plane would still be fine. So they'd been in the air for nearly 10 hours and everything was going as planned. However, they were flying at a lower altitude than normal to avoid strong winds. They had last checked in with air traffic control at 3.15 a.m., roughly two hours before they were set to land in Bermuda. But by 3.50 a.m., their radio went silent and they were never heard from again. The U.S. Air Force launched a rescue mission deploying 26 planes and logging a total of 882 hours of flight in an attempt to recover any wreckage or, God forbid, bodies. But nothing was ever found. The final report was as follows. 
In closing this report, it may truly be said that no more baffling problem has ever been presented for investigation. In the complete absence of any reliable evidence as to either the nature or the cause of the accident of the Star Tiger, the court has been able to do nothing more than to suggest possibilities, none of which reaches the level of even probability. Into all activities which involve the cooperation of man and machine, two elements enter a very diverse character. There is an incalculable element of the human equation dependent on imperfectly known factors, and there is the mechanical element subject to quite different laws. Some external cause may overwhelm both men and machine. What happened in this case will never be known, and the fate of the Star Tiger must remain an unsolved mystery. So I kind of regret doing this episode because I think I have momentarily developed a fear of flying. Many suggest that in the case of the Star Tiger, though, that the pilot may have been fatigued and had forgotten that he was flying at a very low altitude as to avoid strong winds, and that he crashed into the ocean while attempting a descent. It should also be noted that altimeters often malfunction when at a low altitude, at least with this aircraft apparently, and it's the Bermuda Triangle, so things could have been extra wonky. But let's keep moving on, shall we? So on October 30th, 1954, Flight 441 departed from the eastern U.S. bound for the Azores. It was a large naval aircraft transporting naval members and their families and had 42 people on board. They had normal radio communication and everything seemed to be going just fine, and then the radio went silent. Again, an extensive search and rescue effort was made, but nothing was ever found. But they're covering a bunch of water, so I'd imagine no amount of experience can make a search and rescue effort like that very easy. But the search and rescue team was a little perplexed because the size of this aircraft and the fact that it had 111 life vests. So they should have at least seen floating life vests. They also had 46 exposure suits and 5 life rafts. But again, it ultimately had to be ruled a mystery. The official report suggested they might have been hit by some unknown force, but there's really no evidence at all of what happened. It's interesting how many of these missing aircrafts are flown by experienced military pilots. However, this next one involves a civilian pilot and is maybe one of the weirder ones. So in June of 1969, 24-year-old Carolyn Cascio wanted to take her boyfriend on a romantic getaway. The plan was to fly to Grand Turk, and the story varied a little bit with what I could find online, but I think they were also planning to go to Jamaica. She had been flying this Cessna 172 rental for months and felt comfortable with it. So far, she had no incident and was confident in her capabilities. However, when she reached Grand Turk Island, she seemed really disoriented. She knew she had to have been above Grand Turk, her desired destination, because her latitude and longitude readings indicated as much. However, when she looked below her, she just saw a barren island. There was no airport, no buildings, no cars, no people, just an empty island below her. Now, the radio conversation that ensued is a bit weird, as it seems as if both Carolyn is unable to hear what air traffic control is saying, and sometimes maybe air traffic control can't hear her at all. Air traffic control notices Carolyn's plane flying around the island in circles and makes several attempts to contact her and assist her with a landing, but they are having no luck. They even use reflective lights to get her attention, but it's as if the Cessna 172 is completely unaware. There are several people on the runway trying to flag her down, but Carolyn continues to fly around in circles seemingly aimlessly. Now, it seems as if Carolyn can't hear air traffic control, but they can hear her and she is telling them that she can't see anything on the island. 
that she must be at the wrong place. They assure her that she is above Grand Turk, but it's like she doesn't hear them or it's not registering or she's just not listening. She expressed that she was running low or maybe running out of fuel, and her last words reportedly were, Is there any way out of this? By this time, dozens of people were watching her plane, and they watched as it flew into a black cloud and disappeared forever. No one heard or saw any crash. And did they ever find any wreckage? Nope. If you ask me, it's freaking wormholes, man, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know anything about flight and navigation, and I don't want to get too carried away. But I don't care. I'm going with it was a wormhole vortex thingy. Now, this would sound really, really crazy, and maybe it is, if it wasn't for the famous Bruce Gernon case a year later. And this may be the only story we have from someone who claimed to go through the vortex and live to tell the tale. So on December 4th, 1970, pilot Bruce Gernon was flying his Beechcraft Bonanza and was headed to Andros Island off the coast of Florida. He had made this trip several times and was a very experienced pilot. I'm sorry, I misread that. He was heading to Florida. He was heading to Miami from Andros Island. So anyway, um, shortly after he entered the airspace, he noticed a small black cloud that looked as if it was growing larger and larger until it opened up into a donut-shaped hole. He flew through the hole and noticed green and white pulsating lights. He thought the whole thing was rather strange, but found his way out of it soon enough. However, as soon as he came out of this strange cloud, he noticed his altimeter had gone from 1,000 feet to 11,000 feet, seemingly out of nowhere. And this was also recorded by air traffic control. But he became even more alarmed when he saw an even larger black cloud that was unavoidable. He went through this black cloud at this time, and he described it as an elliptical opening about a mile wide. His instruments, including gauges and compasses, all stopped working, and the elliptical hole seemed to be closing in on him. However, he could see a light at the end of this pulsating green and black cloud wormhole thingy and kept his eye on that. Thankfully, he made it out of the cloud safe and sound, but was perplexed when he saw Miami Beach below him. He had arrived 30 minutes early. While he was in the strange clouds, air traffic control reported that he had gone off radar, and they were just as perplexed as Bruce was when they found that he had appeared above Miami Beach 30 minutes early. There was no logical explanation as to why he arrived early or why he went off radar. In a similar incident, an experienced pilot named Jensen reported being lost in a cloud 150 feet above the ground. 11 hours later, his voice was heard 600 miles away from where he was originally lost and out of fuel. Unlike Gernon, Jensen vanished without leaving any trace. And there's a bunch more... Plane disappearance stories I could tell. I think one of the more recent ones was in 2008, or there might have been one in the 2010s. But like I said, there's a bunch of them. Um, again, you can look at the Quester Files or Bermuda slash Attractions. I'm sorry, Bermuda-Attractions.com to look at all of them. But what seems to happen even more than plane disappearances are boat disappearances. Now, we covered a lot of old boats in the last episode, so I'm going to try and focus more on the modern disappearances. But missing and sunken ships in this area go all the way back to the 1600s and probably earlier. I will, however, mention the Ellen Austin, which set sail in 1881 real quick. So the large boat was on its way to NYC when crew members spotted a small sailboat sailing erratically. They approached the ship in hopes of assisting its crew, but there was no one on board. 
The small vessel was completely loaded with supplies, food, water, etc., but not a soul was in sight. The captain of the Ellen Austin instructed some of his men to board the ship and sail it back alongside the Ellen Austin. However, at some point, they were separated by a bout of bad weather. When the Ellen Austin spotted the small sailboat again, they found their crewmates had vanished. Even stranger is that people near the Sargasso Sea, which is about where this took place, claim to still see that strange sailboat today. And many of these stories are accompanied by sightings of a strange green fog. And I came across a story from, I think it was 2020. It was really recent. And the captain was straight up like, nope, not going there, not touching that thing. And they totally avoided the sailboat completely. So if you're sailing in that area and see an empty sailboat, maybe just leave it be. I'm thinking that sailboat may transport you to a, another dimension or is kraken bait or who knows. Or the men just got tossed overboard. But it is an eerie coincidence that it happened twice. Also, real quick, there was the Rosalie in 1840, which was another very large vessel sailing from Hamburg, Germany, to Havana, Cuba. It was found abandoned in the Triangle. Its valuable luxury cargo was still on board. Cages of half-starved or dead canaries were found on board. When vessels as large as this, with such valuable cargo carrying a bunch of crew, vanishes, you gotta admit, it is a bit eerie, isn't it? Could a rogue wave take out all its crew but leave everything else so undisturbed? Because they even found a cat on the Rosalie that was still alive. It's odd to say the least, but okay, let's get into more recent times. So on December 22nd, 1967, a man and his friend set sail in a luxury cabin cruiser named Witchcraft to view the Christmas lights in Miami from the open water. They were about a mile offshore. However, the Coast Guard received a radio message informing them that they needed to be towed. The owner of the boat was calm, cool, and collected. He assured them they weren't in immediate danger and would just rather be safe than sorry. The boat was not significantly damaged, but they worried something had damaged their propeller or rudder. He even said they had flares he could use so they could easily locate them. So the Coast Guard is like, okay, easy peasy, we'll get these guys back out to safety. The Coast Guard arrived just 20 minutes later and they ultimately searched a 25,000 mile area, but there was absolutely no trace of the witchcraft or the two men on board. The men had never even set off the flares. But what's really weird is that the owner of the witchcraft was known for being an especially cautious sailor. His cabin cruiser was equipped with multiple safety measures, including a flotation device in the hull that, should the ship suffer great damage, a part of the hull would still remain afloat. They warned boaters around the area to watch out for debris since they knew the flotation safety device should still be sticking out of the water at least, but no trace of the men or the boat was ever seen again. Sure, the flotation device could have failed, but to completely vanish in 20 minutes is rather weird, and it seems like they likely vanished within less than 20 minutes because they never even set off the flares. I think this is one of the more extremely fishy ones for me personally. I'm not saying it was water aliens, but... It was water aliens, maybe. But moving right along, so on July 4th, 2006, an 18-foot boat belonging to a man named Richard Perez was found off the coast of Virginia Key along with his wallet and keys and other personal belongings. September of 2006, an 18-foot pleasure boat was found abandoned off the coast of Clearwater Beach, Florida. Fishing poles, life jackets, and ice chests were on board. Around the year 2007, a few bodies turned up on and around Anclote Key, but no one knows what happened to them, and the victims don't seem to be connected. In March 2008, a 28-foot fishing boat went missing with three fishermen on board between Everglades City and Tampa. 2008, April 17th, 
the 27-foot Don Cheppo is reported missing en route from St. Jean Virgin Islands to Vieques, Puerto Rico. Owner had two cell phones aboard, a VHF radio, three life jackets, and three flares. Boat was powered by two 200-horsepower Evenrude outboard engines. And as you can imagine, it was never seen again. And I'm sorry, I'm not going into detail with a lot of these, but if I did, the story would pretty much be the same. Search and rescue is deployed, but still, they don't get any good concrete answers. Um, 2009, June 22nd, Coast Guard suspends search for three missing fishermen off Pinones, Puerto Rico. They had departed in a 22-foot beige, grady-white fishing boat. 2009, August 17th, the 22-foot boat of Mark Portis is found beached on the north end of Anclote Key. He left that morning for a day of fishing. A body found on the 21st was believed to be his. This is only one of several derelicts found near Anclote Key where a body later turned up near Hudson Beach. Okay, and I want you guys to do something. Just type in Anclote Key bodies found or body found near Anclote Key or whatever, something like that. Like, what is going on in Anclote Key? There's a lot of dead bodies turning up over there. And like spanning from 2007, 2008 to I think like the 20 teens somewhere was the latest one I can find. It's a bit fishy. Again, 2009, September 20th, a small 16-foot vessel is found abandoned near Anclote Key. The pet dog remains aboard. The vessel keys were aboard as well as a, I think it's a typo. I think it maybe means a tin. The operator, Paula Migliorini, had vanished. Body later found off Hudson Beach. I mean, many of these are in Florida or the vicinity of Florida. It's a weird place. Maybe it's a, a rogue Florida man out there. But um, there's definitely enough boat disappearances that I'm like, if this is statistically not bizarre, then I'm concerned about how many boats are out there getting disappeared around the world because so many you know, scientific articles say that statistically there are no more disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle than there are in other places in the world, so I don't know. But what about the potentially non-human things patrolling the waters and skies in the Bermuda Triangle? This story from 1978 is coming from the Greek reporter. A man named Polycarp Spences aboard a Greek merchant vessel traveling from Cuba to Algiers recalled the strange occurrences he experienced. He says, We started from Porto Matanzas, Cuba, bound for Algiers, with an average speed of 11 miles. Shortly before 12 noon local time, the officers of the ship's bridge began to notice that it appeared to them that the ship was sailing at unusually high speed, but the instruments showed a constant speed of 10 to 11 nautical miles an hour. Some of my colleagues initially hypothesized maybe I had made a mistake in timing since I was the radio operator, but that did not happen and the ship continued to tear through the waves like a dolphin. At 12 noon, Spences continues, the captain asked the second officer to put a Pakistani sailor at the wheel since he himself did not feel well. He could not lift his arms and his body felt too heavy all over. Soon the electrician arrived on the bridge after coming up from the engine room, upset that he had noticed that all the clocks on the boat had gone ahead a whole two hours. Additionally, the helmsman was unable to hold a steady course because the compass, which was gyroscopic and shielded from electromagnetic fields, was turning like crazy. So he had to put on the autopilot and we managed to maintain a steady course. The seasoned merchant mariner goes on to relate, quote, but the strangest of all was something that happened a little after 5 p.m. 
The cook and I were playing backgammon in the smoking room when suddenly we looked back and saw to the left of the ship, i.e. the northwest side, just a few miles away, a large white unidentified flying object in the sky. Then there appeared two smaller flying objects to the west of the large one, and indeed, one of them was attached to it. Experiments of Americans, I assumed. I left immediately and went to the bridge to ask full of anguish if someone else had seen these bizarre devices. Not one had noticed. However, I was sure that something strange was happening with time and how we were affected by the acceleration of the movement of the UFOs. So Spences goes on to explain that he turns on the radio and he could hear Morse code, but that it was unnaturally quick. Um, he heard answering time signals too, that were going too fast. So he is locating different radio stations, but everything is coming on way too fast. He says, I jumped from my chair, opened the window of the chart room and looked at the captain. I could use the more system, but noticed that my hands could not handle even or five letters per minute, even one or five letters per minute, sorry. And it took about two minutes to just walk to the chair for the transmitter. Upset, I told the captain, my hands are just not working. They're not listening to me. He replied that nobody should touch the ship's autopilot. Spences relates that the next day the crew was discussing the strange events that had happened to everyone. A sailor complained that once he lit a cigarette, he didn't have enough time to smoke because it burned immediately. The second mate, who served on the midnight to 4 a.m. shift, had gone to his cabin and was brushing his teeth before he went to bed. He suddenly cried out that the time had just changed to 2340, so he did not have time to sleep. All of us felt bradycardia, an abnormally slow heartbeat, as well as hypothermia during that time. For years now, Spencer explains, I have tried to explain these curious occurrences. I believe that the bradycardia and reduced crew reflexes are due to what is called gravitational time dilation. Gravitational waves emitted by the acceleration of UFO for takeoff and other movements caused by biochemical changes in the metabolism of the human body. This process occurs according to the theories of Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. Spences concluded, Whatever actually happened, it was experienced by more than one person that strange day in the Atlantic. Time will tell if any more evidence will ever be found of the bizarre happenings in this region of the ocean. And again, that was from the Greek reporter from an article coming from 1995. So in March 2009, there was a string of UFO sightings where people on land and in the sky claimed to see yellow glowing lights that seemed to be giving off some type of static electricity. Some said they could see a vortex appear shortly after seeing the UFO and that it lasted about an hour. Details on what the vortex looked like I could not find, but I'm assuming they meant something that looked like an opening in the sky. But, I mean, I couldn't find any pictures, so who knows. Six months later, in October, passengers aboard a large cruise ship in the Triangle reported seeing glowing orange orbs. And this is one of the more common types of UFOs seen in that area. They said they would appear larger and then smaller again. We've seen this kind of UFO in so many stories. They may appear to be like the size of an orange, and then they grow to the size of a basketball or larger, and then they shrink back again. It should also be noted that the ship's radar, radar did not pick up on those objects. And again, in 2014, another cruise ship described an almost identical occurrence. Now, there's also a UFO expert by the name of Scott Waring, who claims he found an utter, underwater UFO on Google Earth. Now, if you look it up, it doesn't look like, well, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. It's definitely large. It's really, really large. 
but it's kind of a rectangle, but definitely not a perfect rectangle. Um, and like I said, it's also freakishly huge, so it seems more likely that it would be a natural formation of some kind, at least to me. However, what makes it weird is that it does appear to move around, and he says there are like tracks, mechanical tracks around the object, and he, he and some others are suggesting this is some kind of underwater transportation system or remnants of an underwater alien mining operation. But we'll save talking about alien mining operations on this planet for when we talk about the Anunnaki. I mean, this theory coming from this one thing on Google Earth is a bit of a leap, so who knows. But in, in and around the entire Bermuda Triangle from Puerto Rico to the Florida coast to the Bahamas to the Cayman Islands, there is a vast and complex limestone cave system where divers have claimed to see strange glowing lights in the water. Moreover, many UFO sightings occur above these blue holes, large, circular, deep blue pools of water that are popular but sometimes dangerous diving destinations. So you've probably seen those pictures. Um, they have a bunch off the coast of the Yucatan too, I think. They're those big, beautiful, blue, perfectly circular, circular holes. They're very, very deep. Um, you can go diving in them. I would be, I think, a little too afraid to go diving in them because they are so deep. But um, this is where a lot of people claim to see lights in and above the water. And um, so I thought I'd mention some stories that I found on New Fork the National UFO Reporting Center. And I'm just going to briefly mention them. You can look for other um, stories if you'd like. But I mean, in the Florida region alone, there's like 8,000 reports. And there's also a bunch coming from the Bahamas. Um, so I'm sorry, I did not look through all 8,000 reports. But here are some. So in June 2023, a couple is in an airplane and the wife reported as follows. While watching the ocean below, I saw a gray cylinder. And I'm sorry, this is coming from Miami Beach. There were no wings, nothing that I could see on it, no exhaust. It occurred to me that it was something strange, so I called to my husband, who leaned over to look out of the window, and I asked him, what is that? And he said, I don't know. It was headed for a tall cloud bank, and we both saw a shadow from the cloud bank fall over it before it disappeared into the cloud where we lost sight of it. About four months before this, a university student had spotted a large cylinder object in the sky for about 20 to 30 seconds, roughly um, in the same area near the Miami Beach area. Also, side note, it's not exactly the Bermuda Triangle, but there were a ton of sightings from Panama City, primarily triangular UFOs, lots of fireballs coming from Key West, um, cylinders from Miami. There's also some triangle UFO stories from Miami. Like, it seems like maybe there's patterns. Um, also, super common are circle or sphere UFOs in the area. So, let's see. Um, September 11th of last year, a large triangle was seen over Miami Beach. And, I mean, again, there's a ton if you want to look at newfork.org, but I am running out of time. Um, but there's just a shit ton to let you know. And, um, I mean, I think Florida is always on at least the top 20 of the states with the most UFO sightings. And maybe the Bermuda Triangle has something to do with that. Okay, so where do I even begin with theories? So let's get the boring, reasonable theories out of the way first. Simplest one, people go missing in and above the ocean all the time. It's nothing new, and the Bermuda Triangle is not special. We simply pay more attention to Bermuda Triangle stories because of the lore that has been built up and around it, and it's essentially all just an urban legend. 
If anything weird is going on, it's due to natural magnetic anomalies that cause compasses and altimeters to malfunction, but the vast majority of sea or aircraft are just fine. And that's the truth. Most are fine. So don't be afraid to go to the Bahamas or the Virgin Islands or Miami. There's also pockets of methane gas apparently throughout the ocean in the Bermuda Triangle area. So they think that may be causing some of the phenomenon that maybe they are causing large waves or like kind of like explosions and that they might be sinking ships. Also, rogue waves do happen and they may even get up to 100 feet tall and can appear out of nowhere. People crash, people get fatigued, people get disoriented, people get taken out by rogue waves, but certainly there's no aliens or no wormholes. There's also a theory that the military is involved in some way. And there are quite a few military bases in the Bermuda Triangle region. Some believe there are even secret underwater bases, possibly within the complex limestone cave systems. One of the government facilities some people think is conducting strange experiments or research is AUTEC, the Atlantic Undersea Test and Evaluation Center, which is a United States Navy project offering underwater testing, in-air test facilities, and support to United States, Canadian, British, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and other military and civilian organizations. Okay, so a friend of mine sent me some messages about an old 4chan or Reddit thread about a guy who claimed to be a high-level intelligence officer of some kind who knew about UFOs and was dying of liver cancer. And I guess this thread has come up again because it corroborates some things that David Grush has said. But so this guy, um, he apparently said that almost all UFOs on the East Coast come from an undersea base in the Atlantic. He also said... Most are unmanned and are the equivalent of one-time-use aircrafts and are being manufactured in that base. Moreover, this alleged internet whistleblower claimed that the base is gigantic and has been there for at least 300 years, possibly as long as 400 years. He also said it has moved, but only for short periods of time, which, if true, is potentially compelling because that Scott Waring guy said the structure or vehicle he thinks he found seems to move around. And that object is bigger than an object. It's, it's like miles long. So that it would maybe make more sense. Maybe what he found was a military base. Although I, f- I feel like if it was some type of secret base, they would have it. They would make sure it would be blocked out of Google Earth. So who knows? But anyway, so this whistleblower, which again is just coming out of 4chan and Reddit. So take this as you will. But he said the base seems to know when people have ill intent and will straight up vaporize aircraft, sea craft, and submarines. But this hasn't happened in a long time, apparently. The whistleblower also said that the base can automatically go into some type of defense mode and can mess with people, technology, whatever the case may be, to steer them off course. He also said there may be one in Antarctica, but he wasn't sure, and that's a story for another episode. And then, of course, there's a theory that these are wormholes, time vortexes, doors to other dimensions, and so on. Of course, that's my favorite theory because we should know, even by episode 14, that I'm obsessed with portals and vortexes, but there's no way to really have any evidence for this. The closest kind of potential evidence is the Bruce Gernon story and the uh, Carolyn Cascio story. They both flew into some weird black cloud, Cascio disappeared, Bruce lived to tell the tale. But then where do you think they'd go? Another time, another dimension. And then where does Atlantis fit into all this? 
Well, some say an antediluvian civilization, meaning a civilization before the Great Flood, existed here and was very advanced, and that they maybe used these vortexes as an energy source, or that they had some kind of religious or spiritual significance or power to them. And the idea, of course, is that Atlantis and other pre-alluvian civilizations, such as Lemuria, Mu, sites like Pumapunku, Tiwanaku, and so forth. Were much more advanced than we are today, and their technology, their wisdom, has unfortunately disappeared for the most part. With you know maybe some remnants of their civilization surviving in some of the ancient societies we learned about in his- history class, such as ancient Egypt, the Mayan civilization, Sumer, ancient India, etc. I think it's very interesting that so many places around the world where these strange anomalies exist. And where so-called unexplained or supernatural phenomena happens, there's always, almost always, ancient megalithic structures or ancient, maybe even prehistoric cities, also exist there. It seems maybe the military or government or whatever underground bases down there is hiding something, some remnant from that civilization from Atlantis. I don't know, man, but Atlantis is a two-parter episode in the future for sure because I am obsessed with Atlantis. So, um. What do I think? It's hard to say. I think many of the disappearances, if not most of the disappearances, can be explained in some way, in a way that's not paranormal. But I think there's too many that are weird. Where I think there's still something strange going on in the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, part of me thinks maybe it's an underwater base of some kind. I mean, there's certainly a history of government bases existing where unexplained activity occurs. I don't know if it's aliens, but I, for one, think we should have never stopped being weirded out by the Bermuda Triangle. That being said,、um, anyone down to go to the triangle for some diving and maybe find a secret door to another dimension that leads to Atlantis, or is that just me? My question to you guys is: What do you think? Is the curse of the Bermuda Triangle real? If so, what's causing it? Or is it simply an urban legend? Let me know what you guys think, and thank you guys so much for listening. I haven't decided what next week's episode is going to be about because I want to pick something that is unrelated to anything that we've talked about already. So we'll see. So until next Tuesday, I hope you guys have a great week. And if you've been sucked through a Bermuda wormhole and have lived to tell the tale, please DM me. So with that, take care, everyone.